everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm with Terry Fakes this week. And we're going to get to the latest Supreme Court uh, action, but you know, we're coming off of a Thanksgiving that was a little different this year. And I think a lot of things have been different because of COVID. And, uh, you know, leading up to Thanksgiving, it really was a stretch in some ways, but a really helpful discipline to be consciously thankful this year. I think in a, in a lot of years, it's kind of easy to be superficially thankful for all the good things we have. But uh, if you've lost anyone this year, if you're not surrounded by family the same way this year, it was a hard year to be thankful. And you had to put some significant effort into counting blessings this year. Right. So uh, I want to talk about something I am thankful for, which is the latest Supreme Court ruling. And I want to go over a few facts of the case first, because this is a this is a pretty important uh, issue, not only for the future of the country, but but in this specific case, people are interpreting these facts really differently. And mm-hmm. so when we get to talk about the brief and the way that the court ruled and the different decisions, uh, it's going to be important to have a good grasp on the basic facts of the case. Well, let me give you the rundown, uh, the short version of the case. Governor Cuomo in New York issued orders for restrictions for the pandemic. And basically, it's a color-coded system. That's not unusual. And so in the orange, which is the next uh, most severe, the highest level, you have restrictions on houses of worship, for example. They can only have 25 people. Not 25%, 25 people. Whereas essential businesses are unrestricted. And even non-essential businesses in the orange zone can decide how many people to let in. In the red zone... Houses of worship are restricted to 10 people, and non-essential businesses have uh, similar restrictions, but essential businesses are, again, unrestricted. Essential businesses in New York include things like liquor stores, uh, big box stores like a Target or that sort of thing, and a variety of other stores that are considered uh, essential businesses. And religious houses of worship are not considered essential, and so they have more restrictions. So the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of New York filed suit along with a Jewish Orthodox community, uh, similar complaints being basically that their First Amendment rights of free expression of religion were being inhibited unreasonably by the governor, given that secular businesses, many of them, had more Uh, freedoms than houses of worship. So they filed suit. They were unsuccessful in court. But given the slow time of moving through the courts, they filed directly to the Supreme Court for injunctive relief, meaning while we're going through courts, give us relief from this burdensome restriction. They filed to Justice Alito, who happens to be the justice who's over that area, and he agreed to look at it. And the court basically gave them injunctive relief. And what that means is that you will not be subject to Governor Cuomo's order while you're working through the courts. Governor Cuomo said it's a moot point because a couple of days before the Supreme Court made the order, he removed the orange and red from those particular areas. They said, well, he could put that back any day for as long as he wants. And so it is still uh, a valid point. So... The order came down five to four to allow them to be exempt from the governor's system 
until the courts finally ruled, potentially all the way up to the Supreme Court for them to hear it as a case. And the uh, justices' various takes on this are really interesting. Yeah, one of the things I'll mention here is I think probably some of our listeners are thinking, is this the same Andrew Cuomo who presided over the worst death count in the United <laughs> States and, and, and then wrote a book about how great his leadership was. Is this the Governor Cuomo that's going to get an award for leadership? Yes, this is the okay. exact same Governor, Andrew <laughs> Cuomo. And uh, I just say that because a lot of the discussion in the country has been over which measures and which restrictions are going to serve the public interest. And this becomes a big issue in the way that the briefs are written, uh, in the way the opinions are written later. New York and New Jersey, New Jersey has the highest count of COVID uh, deaths percentage-wise, were part of that first wave. They uh, had really terrible policies when it came to nursing homes. Of course, there was just Mm -hmm. a lot of widespread unknowns with COVID in the beginning in terms of hospital care, respirators, etc., uh, we had this giant push. You know, President Trump gets involved. We become the number one respirator maker in the world. And then we see cases go down. And now what we're seeing is whether you consider this a second wave or a third wave or, you know, whichever wave. Right. Cases are rising across the country again. And these really strict lockdown measures like you see in New York are being put in place in certain states across the country. People think of maybe Michigan mm-hmm. earlier, Governor Whitmer telling you which seeds you can and cannot buy and plant in your garden during COVID. <laughs> right. California has been under very strict lockdowns and some other states as well. Uh, and all of these are under the promise that it, these measures are going to keep people safer. Mm-hmm. And so support for these measures is based on a very good line of reasoning. We want to keep people safe. We want to do what's necessary to stop the spread of the virus. We, we want to uh, surrender some of our conveniences to uh, basically hope for the common good. Mm-hmm. So Cuomo argues that these restrictions that he's put into place are even, they are uh, beneficial to everyone, and they are assigned based on percent of positive tests in certain neighborhoods and areas. So Mm -hmm. then he assigns yellow, orange, or red based on the positive test rate in these areas. So it comes before the Supreme Court, and it's not the first case of its kind to come before the court. And as you mentioned, this is not a regular Supreme Court case. Right. So we haven't had oral arguments. We haven't selected this case. What this is is a plea for an injunction against the ruling of another court. So in this particular case, uh, the other courts have ruled against these religious groups, and they have appealed for an injunction, a stay against these measures, all the way up to the Supreme Court. And when this happens, so so we have this happen in California, and we had this happen Mm -hmm. in Nevada earlier this summer. When this happens, the court votes on whether or not they want to even take up the injunction or not. And in the previous two cases, this was before Justice Ginsburg's death, they did not want to take up the injunction. Therefore, they let the ruling stand. They let the measure stand. And in that case, they don't have to say anything. Right. So in both of those cases, you have the intrigue of why didn't the court rule on this? Why didn't they at least give a pronouncement on these injunctions? Instead, you just say, we're not going to take it. We're not going to issue an injunction. No opinion is written. Right. Now... 
the situation is very different. And you have Justice Barrett on the court instead of Justice Ginsburg. Five justices want to rule in this injunction. And now we not only have a different ruling, but we have 33 pages of rationale for the different arguments as to why you might or might not support these and measures. This is unusual. There, there is a majority opinion brief for the court just saying we are going to grant this injunction for these reasons. Now, they're not ruling on the issue of you know, long-term set a precedent for this whole issue. They're just saying, we here's our reasoning for saying, yes, we'll give you the injunction until this thing is settled in the courts. That's normal. What's not normal are all of the different opinions by individual justices. You can tell, as you said earlier when we were talking about this, there's a lot of interest by the justices to weigh in on the merits of this case. Right. So sometimes you'll see in the rulings you have different you know, you have a majority opinion, and then you have a dissenting opinion. And uh, those are written by uh, a justice which is selected by the senior justice in the group. So the senior, if it's the chief, usually in the majority would select the person who writes it, or if the chief in this case is in the dissent, he chooses who writes that. And, and uh, you typically see maybe one or two other opinions. And just to give a sense of how uh, vibrant this discussion must have been. In this case, you have a majority opinion, which is the conservative, what's known as the conservative justices. And we'll talk about this later. I don't really like to call them the conservative justices because right. I think the Supreme Court is not necessarily divided by conservatives and liberals. It's right. divided by textualist originalists and living constitutionists. Right. So these are, these are methods of interpretation. And even that is far too simple mm-hmm. a way to divide them. But, but I do think we need to get away from calling justices liberal and conservative because that's not what we want any of the justices to be doing. We right. want them to be evaluating through a lens of judicial philosophy, not through a bipartisan framework. But the justices that we typically consider conservative justices. So that would be uh, Justice Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett. They were in the majority opinion. And then in the dissent would be the other four justices, the Chief Justice, John Roberts, who was with what's typically regarded as the three liberal justices, which would be uh, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, you also had a separate dissenting opinion from the Chief Justice, uh, a separate dissenting opinion from Justice Breyer, and a separate dissenting opinion from Justice Sotomayor joined by Justice Kagan. Then on the other side, you had concurring opinions with the majority uh, that, that were from Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh. <laughs> so in 33 pages, you have several different angles. And one of the things I one of the reasons I wanted us to talk about this is because we have the rare opportunity to see about five different arguments, right? five different philosophies on the same case. And this case just so happens to be a topic of discussion, not only on a national level, but mayors, governors, city councils are all debating this issue right now. Right. Every church is wondering whether or not they're going to be able to be open in a way that they get to choose mm-hmm. or if they're going to have to abide by municipality restrictions or state restrictions or uh, you know arbitrary restrictions from somebody else that may be wanting to impose those on right. the church. And so this is a great opportunity to sort through different lenses, different angles of assessing COVID restrictions. So... In the majority opinion, 
the five justices basically argued uh, the, the two complaints that these groups brought, which the, the first one would be uh, that it's unconstitutional to label certain businesses as essential and other businesses, especially churches, non-essential. I think probably Justice Kavanaugh put this best in his concurring, his separate concurring opinion where he says, if you're going to create a, a specific privileged class of businesses then because of what our Constitution says in the First Amendment, you have to prove in a com- with a compelling reason why churches are not included in that group. So first thing is, you can't declare certain businesses essential and churches not essential. The second complaint came from the Jewish communities that right. filed their suit against uh, Cuomo, basically discriminating against certain groups by assigning these levels red, orange, and yellow, arbitrarily. So geographically, in their view, to make sure the Jewish communities were in the affected areas. In other words, specific animus toward the Jews. Right. So in the majority opinion, essentially they say, look, this is causing harm to these groups. Mm -hmm. This is arbitrary in the sense that it is unconstitutional. And it is not standing in the way of the public good to not have these restrictions. There's no public good by having this uh, restriction, they're likely to win this argument on the merits of their case, which is a sign that those Mm -hmm. five justices thought, you know, if this just came to us and this is all we know, they'd probably win. And you're right. So that was the what all five of them agreed on, is that there's reason to issue the injunction. Now, what did the opposition, what did the dissenting opinion argue? I want to divide it into two pieces. You may add to this because I'm not as familiar with Breyer's. But Chief Justice, now remember, there are two issues here. The issue at stake is whether or not to issue an injunction saying you temporarily don't have to abide by the governor's schemes while you're in court. But the bigger issue, which isn't really the the point here, is is what Governor Cuomo's doing constitutional. And so... The Chief Justice, Roberts, restricts himself very narrowly to the first question. Does there need to be an injunction? And his point is, it's not necessary for two reasons. One, Cuomo already removed them from that area, so this weekend they're welcome to meet. Mm -hmm. And if Cuomo comes back and reclassifies them as, oh no, you are now back in the orange or you're now back in the red, we will quickly take up an appeal Mm -hmm. at that time. Yeah, so significant he that he restricts believes himself. that these restrictions are uh, undue. They, he, he, he says does. in his right. separate uh, opinion, they do seem unduly restrictive. But since these groups are not actually under the restrictive conditions right now, at the moment, because right. the governor reassigned uh, <laughs> right. the it. levels, uh-huh. they don't actually need an injunction right now. Right. And so we shouldn't. We shouldn't uh, rule in their favor at this point. Right. Now, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan take a different approach. They go beyond the issue of whether or not there should be an injunction. Obviously, they don't think there should be, but they get into the merits of the case. Mm -hmm. And here is is how they want to narrowly, in my view, fairly narrowly parse this. Their point is you have three classes of people going on here. You have essential businesses that admittedly have more freedoms. You have houses of worship, which, 
admittedly, have less, and you have non-essential businesses that have less than the essential businesses. And so their point is they completely sidestep, nor do they refer to the First Amendment rights. They simply say this is fair for this reason. The houses of worship are being treated the same as comparable businesses. For example, Mm -hmm. a liquor store, you might walk in, get your liquor with your mask on, and out you go, and you're in there 15 minutes. Right. So that's not comparable to a worship service where you go in, even with a mask, but you're there for an hour. Right. Now, look at a business where you might be there for an hour, say a bowling alley. You would go in, you'd be around people for an hour or two. Well, it's also restricted. So in other words, the houses of worship are being treated the same as similar businesses. So they want to pretty narrowly parse it. They make no reference to the fact that houses of worship have constitutional perspective protections, they simply want to say, you know, actually, this is kind of fair. Right. Well, and this is the argument that Cuomo originally made, is that light businesses are being treated in like ways. So if you look at the restrictions, and, and you know, at the end of the day, uh, this case is something to be thankful for, but, but the reason we're having this conversation is to talk about the implications of the case. Right. You know, so we're not attorneys, neither one of us have been to law school, we're not constitutional scholars, and we're not pretending to be. But there's something here that is applicable to every single person who's wondering how we should respond to right. coronavirus restrictions, and every single person who's wondering what their civic duty is uh, in terms of uh, what to do and not do. And then the other layer, I think the one that we're the most interested in, is what is our job as Christians? So right. you've heard a lot of talk about what does it mean to love your neighbor during the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Does, it, does loving your neighbor mean shutting down your church? Does loving your neighbor mean wearing your mask? Does loving your neighbor mean refusing to wear your mask? I mean, that's the angle we're really interested in here. And so there's an element of Cuomo's argument that I think is really caught on with a lot of people as a paradigm for looking at restrictions. So, for example, if you look at the way the tiered system works, there are provisions for schools, essential businesses, churches, and large gatherings. Mm -hmm. So... If you just look at churches, schools, and large gatherings, churches have a slightly more lenient uh, limit on their people than either of those other two groups. So, for example, in the yellow, you can have gatherings capped at 25 people, but a church can be open at 50% capacity. In orange, the gatherings are limited to 10 but the churches are limited to 25 people. In right. red, the churches can stay open. They can only have 10 people, which is like basically your worship team. And right. uh, you can't have a mass gathering of any size. So what Cuomo argued is we're actually treating churches more leniently than these other like gatherings. And that's a compelling point if you believe that churches are essentially mass gatherings. Right. The, the way that you shift the conversation, and this is where the, the opinion that, that uh, Sotomayor and Kagan wrote and the opinion later that we're going to talk about that Gorsuch wrote, actually see this from diametrically opposed perspectives. Same data, same constitution, same mm-hmm. set of restrictions, but they see this completely differently. Sotomayor and Kagan, one of the, one of the quotes I thought was really illuminating in their opinion 
they're siding on, on health restrictions. Like you said, they're not really considering this a constitutional issue. They're considering this a matter of public health. Right. And so what they say is justices of this court play a deadly game in second-guessing the expert judgment of health officials about the environments in which a contagious virus, now infecting a million Americans each week, spreads most easily. So in their opinion, a church service is exactly the same as any other mass gathering. It's an opportunity for the virus to spread. And when you look at it from that perspective and, and, and you reason the way they do, they say, I mean, I'm guessing they're probably thinking, why are you allowing churches to have more people than other mass gatherings? Mm-hmm. Because that's essentially what they are. Right. And I don't know about you, but I've heard that kind of argument a lot in the pandemic. Basically, uh, you know, a church can decide or not decide when to open, but since this affects other people, right? So if you go and you get the virus at a church service, you take it outside the church. Now, all of a sudden, this is a public issue. This is a social issue. It, it affects more than just the people in the congregation. Therefore, congregations ought to play by the rules of everybody else in society. Right. I've heard that a lot. Have you heard that? And, and how would you respond to that? Yes, I have heard that. And it's a very... And I know, I'm not saying this in any negative sense. It is a completely secular way of looking at it, that this class of entities are the same. The first line in Gorsuch's opinion is this. Government is not free to disregard the First Amendment in times of crisis. The difference here is that from a constitutional point of view, a church is nothing like other gatherings. Churches have specific, spelled out, very proactive rights to freedom of religion and freedom to express that religion, free to practice that religion. That's not something any business, whether it's an essential business or a non-essential business, have. So if you are looking at this from the Constitution of the rules we set up to govern ourselves, that way of looking at it's wrong. If you want to look at it as though the highest good is the health of the public, well, now you can do all kinds of things that might violate the Constitution. Right. But the Constitution doesn't define the highest good or even the operative good of the people. It doesn't say anything about public health professionals. It does not. And it doesn't say anything about essential and non-essential businesses. Right. And here's the thing I would add to that argument is that might be an okay argument if we thought like Sotomayor and Kagan that we should view this only through the lens of public health and not through the lens of whether or not a church is essential. Except, and I don't know if I'd agree with that then, but except this is not the way that governors and mayors have enforced this rule. So they don't, they don't enforce it in a fair or egalitarian approach. Right. So one of the things that the Catholic diocese was so upset about is you can have hundreds of people in a Target uh, shopping as because long as they're they an essential business, right. but you can only have 10 people on the next block in a church going to Mass. And so there's a very unfair application of this rule. Now, this isn't the case in New York, but in California right now, the exemptions are made for churches and protests. And that makes a lot of people mad. Right. Now, that has better standing than the essential, non-essential divide, because the First Amendment also gives us the right to peaceably assemble. But 
you know, a lot of people are saying after everything we've seen this summer, thousands of people outside without masks, and it's the churches who are getting uh, ruled against here. Mm-hmm. I think there's a spirit uh, um, in the country amongst a lot of groups that are saying, if this argument were being made and enforced fairly, I might be able to go with it. But the main problem is this isn't being enforced fairly. You could read that same sentence from Sotomayor and Kagan against a lot of the exceptions that have been made for protests, for essential businesses, for other things like that. I mean, Justice Gorsuch lists a lot of essential, quote-unquote, businesses like acupuncturists right. and gyms and liquor stores and targets. And, you know, this it's not a fair application. Well, and I would add on to that because you're exactly right. First of all, the the basic difference is a judge is expected to let the Constitution, the laws, but then ultimately the Constitution is the highest authority for a judge. That's their job. That is their ultimate authority is the Constitution. What we basically said is Sotomayor and Kagan are saying, no, the ultimate authority in this case is public health. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a difference. Even if they were right, even granting them that, here's the problem with their argument is we won't go against public health officials. Well, stop for a second. In Let's suppose in New York, public health officials said more than 10 people in a church is, is really bad and more than 10 people in a target is fine. Many people as you want in a target. That's not the case in North Dakota. Their public health officials have completely different rules. California, completely different rules. I was in Kansas this weekend. If you have a liquor license, you can have more people in your building than if you don't have a liquor license. So the point is, even if I bought their premise, there is no such thing as public health officials guidelines. Right. That varies. There's not a monolithic uh, there is no set of guidance structure there. Right. So I, I think from that aspect, that's compelling to a lot of people, but inconsistent in the way that it's been enforced in this situation and in a lot of situations across the country. Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at Gorsuch's opinion. So the majority opinion here is pretty straight down the fairway. Like we said, it, it rules on things like, is this a public health emergency? Uh, do these people have standing? Does it do them harm? Gorsuch decides to go a little further. And the, the re- there's two reasons I really enjoyed reading Gorsuch's opinion. The first one being that he absolutely flames Governor Cuomo's uh, <laughs> his uh, record on this issue right. and the arbitrary nature with which he has decided to rule New York. And then secondly, because I think he makes a very compelling and informative case on what religious liberty actually means under the Constitution. Right. So, for example, this one probably tends a little bit towards the first reason, but after looking at what is essential and non-essential, Gorsuch writes, so at least according to the governor, it may be unsafe to go to church, but it is always fine to pick up another bottle of wine, shop for a new bike, or spend the afternoon exploring your distal points and meridians. Who knew public health would so perfectly align with secular convenience? Very weird. And that just points to yeah. the fact that this is totally inconsistent. This reminds me of the of the opinion that that the dissenting opinion that Gorsuch wrote earlier this year in Nevada, where he says, "Okay, so I guess the entities that are explicitly protected under the Constitution, like churches, uh, have to be closed. But if you want to go uh, you know, throw another bet down on the roulette table 
in the state of Nevada, that is your protected class of right. businesses. Um, but he goes on to make what I think is a is a pretty clever and and pretty insightful point uh, about religious liberty. He says the governor is remarkably frank about this. In his judgment, laundry and liquor, travel and tools are essential, while traditional religious exercises are not. That is exactly the kind of discrimination the First Amendment forbids. This is where we have to go back to the basics of what are the freedoms guaranteed in the First Amendment. And like I said earlier, this is not this is not the topic of conversation for constitutional scholars. This is a topic of conversation for us if we want to know what our freedoms are in America um, and, and what it means to be a good citizen. So in the First Amendment, you have a protection for the free exercise of religion. Right. And there's also the phrase that you know the government cannot establish uh, a religion. And so sometimes we side with one of those instead of the other. But I think this is a pretty full-throated defense of what the First Amendment means, which is people are free to practice their religion. Now, of course, you always have the person that comes and says, well, you know, if my religion says that I can be a cannibal, or if my religion says that I can be a polygamist, or if my religion says that, you know, I can kill people who, who disagree with me, should that should I be able to practice that religion? Mm-hmm. And uh, that I think that's a pretty easy thing to well, respond to. Well, it's a red herring. But... The, the U.S. actually has navigated some of these before. So Utah, right. for example, had to outlaw polygamy before they became a state. And uh, so there are clear limits to the things that you personally can do. But in terms of practicing your religion, like going to a house of worship, or uh, you know, one of the things that gets banned a lot in these restrictions is singing. So people say you can go to church, but you can't sing or shout or read responsibly. Uh, very loud, or you know, all these other things. But right. I think these are pretty easily dispatched with. You know, the last line of uh, Gorsuch's opinion says this It is past time to make clear that while the pandemic poses many grave challenges, there is no world in which the Constitution tolerates color coded executive edicts that reopen liquor stores and bike shops but shutter churches, synagogues, and mosques. In other words, his point is, is this isn't even a close call. There is no world in America where an executive can open some things and shutter a constitutionally protected event. He's just really, uh, I think he's kind of shocked on behalf of a lot of Americans that this is even a contentious issue. Exactly. You know, one of the things I wrote about in my post today in the weekly speak was, is this just a victory for religious people? So a lot of these conversations in the country now have have pivoted to, okay, so you have five conservative justices, maybe five and a half conservative justices, depending on which way the chief Roberts justice is, wants is, to uh, going. Yeah, But you have, you have a block of conservative justices who stand up for things like the pro-life movement, religious freedom, the Constitution, etc., is this basically a theocracy writ small emerging in the United States? And one of the posts I thought was really helpful was from Tyler Cowen, uh, who is not religious at all. He mm-hmm. is an economist at uh, George, George Mason. Mason University at the Mercatus Center. Mm-hmm. And he wrote on his blog this week, um, he says, While I'm not a religious person myself, I regard religious services as essential parts of our society and also in the longer run for our economy birth rates, if nothing else. 
More generally, I'm struck by how many intelligent people no longer seem to attach much weight to religious liberty, by no means starting with the various anti-church moves during the Obama administration, but certainly emphasized there. So I am happy to see pushback in the opposite direction, siding with the rights of religious institutions. I think you can be a secular person and see the value, not just presently, but historically, in the way that our country was designed for religious groups to be able to practice their religion. I agree with that. I think you don't. this is not even, even a little bit a religious argument. This is simply a constitutional argument. And it's simply saying, how best does our society function? We have agreed, as Americans, by and large, that it functions best according to the rules laid down in this thing called the Constitution, and as it's been interpreted in very specific cases by the Supreme Court. So we've kind of agreed on that as our social structure. And so I think someone like a Tyler Cowen can look at that and say, you can't just start jettisoning certain amendments to the Constitution and say, oh, we're going to, that one's not important to us anymore. Because to some group, any of them are unimportant. The only way we have a coherent society and economy is by some shared values, and those are encoded in our Constitution. That's not religious. That's just what works in a society. Well, that's exactly right. And I think somebody like Tyler Cowen sees the merits of the way the system was designed and the ability to live within those. Mm -hmm. I, I can't remember who originally said this. I'm sure we could attribute it. And I'm sure if we looked it up, it has been attributed to everybody under the sun. But I'm going to attribute it to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Because I think he said this, but it could have been Abraham Lincoln, could have been George Washington, could have Uh been somebody else. But, you know, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I think that is not a religious point. That is a civic point. And if you trace that theme through American history, what you'll see is allowing injustice to occur to people that you don't agree with or allowing injustice to occur to people that you don't like is actually a threat in the future to your liberty and your sense of justice in the long run. That's one of the beautiful things about how America is designed, but it requires that all of us stand up for things that may not be our particular pet issue at this moment. And therein lies the danger. You know, to some people, uh, freedom of religion is, is offensive. It's like, ah, we don't need that in our society. The problem is your neighbor has another, right, that they don't like. So where do you stop? And so this isn't religious. Again, this is pragmatic. I mean, the basic is like you have to have some shared set of rules, not all of which you may agree with, in order to actually have a functioning society. Mm -hmm. If if you throw away a couple of amendments and I throw away a couple more, pretty quickly we don't have a coherent society. And that's what Tyler Cowen is saying. So if we do want to zoom out to the religious issues here, and I I think there are a lot of things to talk about, not just with this case, but with the trajectory of the country right now, what are the big religious liberty issues that you see on the horizon right now, or the things that that you've been thinking about over the last couple of years when it comes to Christians, churches, Christian businesses and organizations, and our religious freedoms in America? Well, let me summarize it. I could talk about this for a long time, but I'm going to be really shorthand. I'll let you expand on it. Basically, a number of social issues have been included in what are called civil rights. 
and you can talk about the Title VII reinterpreting some old laws to now include things that were never intended. But basically, certain social issues about which Christians for 2,000 years across the board and Muslims and Jews have said, this is outside the pale of our faith. Those things have been included as civil rights, redefined as civil rights. Now that they are civil rights in our country, that trumps, rightly or wrongly, even First Amendment rights. So what we saw in the Obama administration, what we will see again in a Biden administration, is pressure on all religious groups to say, you are welcome to believe what you want, but when it comes to civil rights, which remember, now include a ton of social issues they didn't include 20 years ago, you are trumped by Mm -hmm. that right. Therefore, Christian colleges, you will receive no government-guaranteed loans. You can't participate in any student loan program because you're violating someone's civil rights by what you believe. Yeah. And uh, churches, you are now subject to uh, threats, intimidation, and potentially even lawsuits for hate speech for violating someone's civil rights even though it's something you have believed for 2,000 years and still do. So I would, I'll stop there and simply say that development has brought uh, relig- all religious institutions, not just Christian, under the gun of the government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an article I linked to this morning uh, in First Things by, I think, Kenneth Craycraft, and it's, and it's What Should Christians Expect in the Biden-Harris Administration? And I think he's exactly right when he says, I don't think we're headed for overt persecution. And this is a straw man, I think, or a red herring that people throw out a lot. We're not being persecuted, so stop talking like we're being persecuted. You could be in North Korea, for example, or Iran or somewhere like that where you're being persecuted. And I don't think we're headed for out-and-out persecution. You know, you're going to be beaten and thrown in jail. Physical punishment. But it is going to get very uncomfortable and it's going to be very difficult to practice your faith outside of your own head. Okay, this is kind of the Obama-Hillary Clinton version of religious freedom. You can believe whatever you want in your head, but you cannot speak about it, you cannot practice it, you cannot live your life in right. such a way that reflects it. Uh, that's, that's how a very naive or very nefarious secular person defines religion. Right. So I think he's right that it's going to be difficult. It's going to be a nuisance. It's going to be, um, there, there are going to be a lot of bureaucratic, financial, and social limitations to the way that you can practice your faith in America uh, the further we go into the Biden administration. So this is not, you know, sound all the alarms starting on January 21st. All of a sudden, if you're a Christian, you're being thrown in jail. But people quickly forget the kind of harassment that was taking place at the end of the Obama administration. Oh, quickly and forget that. That's we got right. a good reminder of that in the most in one of the recent Supreme Court cases, the Bostock case. And this is where Gorsuch, who is such a crusading hero this week in 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 this case, was just mind-blowingly off the mark in the Bostock case. So basically that one comes down to can you fire, discriminate in hiring uh, in a business against someone because of their sexual preference or their gender identity. So you have one of the cases, I think there are three cases in that one, but you have one of them where you have a funeral home, 
who hires a person who was a male, then they transition, all of a sudden they identify as a female, and they're not abiding by the dress code that they were hired under, and so the person fires them. They sue, they go, they win at the Supreme Court because Justice Gorsuch basically redefines Title VII, which is is, is one of those uh, rights you said that now is starting to trump all the other you know religious freedom exemptions. They basically said you cannot discriminate against a person based on sex or uh, gender in the workplace. So you wouldn't think that that would cover transgenderism unless you do what Gorsuch did, which is define sex to mean sexual uh, preference and gender to mean gender identity preference. So now all of a sudden your gender is not your biology it's, that's covered. It is your identification that is covered. So now you cannot be fired for identifying as whatever you want to identify as. And so it's, it's those kinds of things that are going to be the biggest source of strife for Christian groups. Because the play is pretty simple. We have laws on the books that say you cannot discriminate against people for these protected categories. Right. We're not really in the business of making new laws right now. I don't know if anybody, you know... Notice that Congress doesn't actually do anything. Yeah, nobody could cite probably a recent example of something, a piece of legislation like that today. Instead, we take pieces of legislation that are now, you know, 50 years old, and we redefine them to suit current sensibilities so that we can extend the protections that they guarantee against groups or for groups that are presently a concern. That's a key observation and very astute. That's a 57-year-old law, Civil Rights Act, Title VII Civil Rights Act. And what happened there is, and watch for more of this, is there's no legislation needed. There's no debating by the people's elected representatives. We will simply redefine a word to be something different than what it meant when the law was passed. And you expect to see that tactic used a lot more. But I would make one statement about persecution. In history and in the book of Revelation, anytime you look at Christians, I'll restrict myself to Christians, persecution is always begun with economic persecution. And it quickly then moves to physical persecution. And that is exactly the trajectory that will happen here. But if you don't believe me about the physical persecution, that's fine. But you are going to quickly see economic persecution. Right. And and this is where we need to really be paying attention. So we did a podcast a year ago when in some kind of, I can't remember if it was a debate or a town hall, Beto O'Rourke says, yeah, we're stripping uh, tax exemption away from any group who speaks out with hatred against the LGBTQ community. So in Beto's world, which I, 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 there's probably not more than three or four people in America that want to live in Beto's world, but <laughs> in Beto's world... If you speak out against, if you say something like homosexuality is sinful, if you say that, that is not just an expression of your personal belief. That's not just an expression of what the church has believed for 2,000 years. That is now hate speech. And hate speech is a really hot button issue because it's empathic. Who, who wants to stand up in, in front of hate speech? You know, we mm-hmm. don't want to be for hate speech. We're against hate speech. Well, if that's considered hate speech, 
all of a sudden, should we give tax exemption to organizations who engage in hate speech? Should we be subsidizing groups? Should we be giving government dollars, taxpayer money, to people who uh, engage in this kind of bigotry? Well, it depends on how you define bigotry. And when you define it to entail certain Christian beliefs, uh, what is and isn't sin, or what you can and can't say in a pulpit, or how you teach the Bible, then you construct a world in which it makes total sense under that framework, and you have the legal protection to do something like uh, strip tax exemption status away from a church. Which goes back ultimately to, again, another constitutional right of freedom of speech, which is being circumscribed. So you do see some trends. Let me ask you a question, because uh, I'm interested in how you now take this into the Christian churches. And you're a pastor, let's say, in a Christian church. What do you think of Christians who say, well, you know what, this isn't really that big a deal. This is politics. Look, I can love my neighbor. I can go out and serve people. Uh, whether I'm in North Korea or whether I'm in the United States. I can go out and serve people whether I'm in a red zone and can't go to church at all or whether I'm in a yellow zone and we can go to church. In other words, none of this really matters to our mission of go love your neighbor. Right. What do you think about that point of view? Is there anything true in that and is there anything that is not being said in that? Yes. So my first response, and I've seen this reaction a lot, and Mm -hmm. there's something kind of, I I don't know if there's something kind of appealing about that line of thought, or it seems a little holy to view it that way, or maybe a little self-righteous to view it that way. But, you know, back to your example, just because the church can thrive in North Korea doesn't mean the rest of the world needs to pretend like they're in North Korea. That's a very good point. So, you know, I saw a tweet from a pastor that normally I really like. I follow him on Twitter, and uh, he, he's a pastor in New York City, and he basically said, he quote tweeted the, you know, some other Christian that was saying, this is a really great thing that the Supreme Court ruled this way. He quotes that tweet and says, doesn't make a difference for us. We're going to continue loving our neighbors in Brooklyn at his church. Mm-hmm. And I guess I didn't read all the replies, uh, but I guess he got some replies. And so a couple hours later, he said, just to clarify... We've been operating at 25% capacity for several months now. And I just thought to myself, I said, why, first of all, would you dismiss a right that not only is in your best interest as a church, and we'll talk about the health concerns later, but not only that is in your best interest as a church, but number two, uh, might be something that you're really happy to have later. So his point was essentially... We're not in a red zone right now. We've been operating by this twenty-five percent, which mm-hmm. I think if you check the, I think if you check the levels, two of the levels they can't be at twenty-five percent unless right. you know they're a church of eighty people or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he is a relatively big church. But anyway, so number one, why would you take joy in something that gives you freedom? And two, why would you be boasting about something that? you actually are going to be in violation of later if this governor arbitrarily assigns your area to be under those restrictions. But the thing that really gets to me is, why are we so interested in appealing to other people, whether it's secular people or other Christian people, at the expense of other Christian churches? 
why are we like like why would we want to bash this Catholic diocese or these you know conservative or Orthodox Jewish groups just so that maybe a few other people will come to our church because we're cool and we take the public health guidelines seriously? What you know you hear a lot of talk about are 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 we preserving our witness? Are we expanding our witness? I'm a lot less interested in preserving our witness if it means that secular people find us attractive than I am with honoring the bride of Christ and siding with other Christians when it comes to the possibility of future persecution. Yes, if you aren't careful, you get into something that Doug Wilson described, and it just hit me right between the eyes. If we aren't careful, and we want to be careful not to do this, but if as Christians, if we stand in front of the secular world and beat our breast and say, thank God I'm not like those Christians over there. Mm-hmm. That's not a good picture in the New Testament. <laughs> and I don't think we want to be that way. My second thought is this. We should be careful. I think we should call out uh, false teaching that jeopardizes people's salvation. I don't think we need to quibble over a lot of little things that we quibble over. But... I think we should be very, very careful about insulting Christ's bride. Mm -hmm. I know if you insult my wife, I'm not going to be happy about that. And I don't want Jesus Christ to say to me, why did you throw your brother under the bus to please somebody who hates me? Mm-hmm. I don't really want to be in that situation. And I think no. none of us as Christians do. No. And I think we should be very, very careful but it's, the, the thing about it is it's become a large, I don't even want to say a cottage industry anymore. It's become a large industry in Christianity, Inc. Right. And there is a growing divide in whether it be, you know, the things that you read, certain organizations, certain pastors you follow. People respond well to making fun of other people, putting other people down, saying, you know, as you said, Lord, thank you. I am not like those other Christians. That sells and right. it gets clicks, and it attracts people. You know, if you just go through and you look at the religious writers that are in places like the Washington Post, the Atlantic, uh, religious news services, several other publications, and you look at what they they generally write, mm-hmm. every single one of them is hired by those organizations to trash conservative Christians. Every single one of them. And I just don't think. Number one, I know this is. I know this is not what Christ loves. I know it's not what He wants because it's explicit in the Bible that you shouldn't be doing that. But I just don't think it's going to work out well in the long run to build yourself up as a Christian who has made their fame and their notoriety and their crowd that follows them by making fun of other Christians. I just don't think that works well in the long run. Well, the way I've usually summarized that, I completely agree with you, is, you know, when you're in the sleigh full of people and you're being chased by the hungry wolves, uh, it seems like a good strategy to throw somebody out to the wolves. Yes. But all you're really achieving is, is you get eaten last. Right. That's exactly right. To switch to another issue, kind of a what do we do about this? I've been really interested in the different approaches that are being taken to religious liberty issues. And, you know, I, I'm sure some people are listening to this thinking, oh my gosh, you guys are really overdoing this. <laughs> you, you know. And this isn't really to do with the election. I don't want people to think that, you know, we think that everything is changing just because, uh, you know, if Biden takes the oath of office on January 20th, things just immediately change. I think this is probably happening no matter who the president is. It just is is really determinative what the speed limit is at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but there's some really interesting conversations going on about religious liberty more broadly. And I'll divide it into two groups, and then you either respond or maybe you have other people that you follow. So the first group I would call the David French group, and I, I think David French is really smart. I, you know, He's an uh, attorney that worked for the Alliance Defending Freedom, so he's been in the trenches defending religious freedom. Um, I read almost everything he writes, even though sometimes he gets on my nerves. But mm-hmm. he's a really sharp commentator. And what he thinks is going on is you're getting more and more and more protection for groups like the LGBTQ community, uh, you know, far-left agendas on things like hate speech or bigotry or identity politics or things like that. But at the same time, you have courts who are committed to further entrenching and protecting religious liberty. So as protections for other groups get built up, uh, that may seem like an infringement on religious liberty, the more the uh, exemptions are being built up. And so at the end of the day, the net is our religious freedom is very secure and our society is getting more hostile to religious people. And I think that might be an accurate reading of what's actually happening in America, but I'm not sure that's what I want to be happening in America. I'm not sure I'm okay. I don't know that I count that as a net win for religious groups. So the other crowd uh, would be what you read more like in certain parts of First Things. You see some really devout Catholics who are Uh writing about this. Um, You know, you had the the big divide between David French and uh, Sora Bamari from the New York Post. The other side of this, people like R.R. Reno would say, well, actually, the solution to this is not to further entrench our religious freedoms against uh, the onset of these other protected classes or threats to religious liberty. The solution would be for the government to stop protecting both of these categories uh, and just allow the Constitution to protect who it it protects and not go beyond that. Mm -hmm. So if anything, what we need actually is a drawdown of these extensive protections so that basically we're not legislating or regulating or executive ordering or dear colleaguing any of these groups so that the framework of religious liberty exists as it is. And I'll tell you, I think that's appealing to me because if you rely on ramped up religious liberty protections to meet the weight of ramped up protected groups, all you need is a tiny crack in religious liberty at the Supreme Court, uh, district courts, executive orders that don't get overturned, and all of a sudden the crushing weight. I mean, if these are two big bricks leaning up against each other, all you need is one little crack in religious liberty before you get crushed. I would just rather that we start taking the weight off of both sides so that if you know we get a ruling that doesn't go in the favor of religious liberty, well, the alternatives are not that bad because we don't have this giant mass of legislation mm-hmm. or this giant mass of protection from the federal government. So that's kind of one of the things I'm seeing. What do you think? Yeah, I... I- I agree with your analysis of that. I really look at this whole issue in a different category, which guides my way forward as a Christian teacher, pastor, whatever. And it is the basic divide for me is an ideological divide. And it's very real. This is going to sound a little philosophical, but just look around and you'll say, yep, that's exactly right. Is you have an ideology outside the church. The prevailing ideology is 
you can call it whatever you want, but basically you as a human being are defined by the class that you fit in, whether it's an ethnic class, a racial class, a gender class, a sexual preference class. In other words, you find your identity in some group of people like you in some way. And that's appealing at the beginning because the narrative is always this. Here's the story. It says you are part of XYZ group. And you know what? The people have been oppressing you that are part of another group, you know, the white group or the male group or the heterosexual group, whatever you want. There's always a you are oppressed. And that's appealing at first because it says, yes, we can stand together in solidarity to find freedom. Pretty quickly you realize, though, and you're starting to already see this, that the end of that ideology is very totalitarian because you have no individual identity. And so you ultimately don't matter as an individual. You only matter insofar as you are part of a class. Here's the church's counter view. And to be fair, we, and I'm talking about me, haven't done a good job of articulating this because the way that to win this is not legislated, not through the Supreme Court. Those things are important because we can use those freedoms. But our point is simply this. You are uniquely created by God in his image. You matter and you matter no matter what your sexual preference, no matter what the color of your skin, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter what your politics, you actually matter. That ultimately leads to freedom, not totalitarianism, and honoring the individual. In other words, the story of the gospel, of who we are, is so far superior to the story of grievance and victimhood in our culture. The reason that we aren't winning that battle in our culture is we're not telling that story in our culture. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm a little naive, but I think that's the real, uh, where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, I agree, and I wouldn't really add much to that. It, the The fundamentals of the Christian faith is the biggest problem in the world is sin. Yeah. And not just alienation among groups of people, classes of people, alienation from God. Mm -hmm. And when we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we will be reconciled to other people. And that's where reconciliation is a very important thing for Christians to engage in. But it is not something that we believe that can happen without the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Right. So as long as we remember that our fundamental unity is in Christ, in the church, and then with the world... We can engage in all these reconciliation efforts, yes. but we can't do it through the lens that your greatest problem is your victimhood because of class oppression or identity political oppression. So we as Christians do have a positive, we have an optimistic view of this. Yes. And I don't want I don't want for a moment to end this discussion by thinking things are going poorly for the church. We're just gonna have to endure, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of bad rulings and things. No. We do believe that we've been put here to be a blessing to the nations, that we are fulfilling in Christ the promise of Abraham, that God is going to bless the world through Christians. And we believe that that will ultimately happen in the future, but we believe we're taking part in that right now. The kingdom of God is expanding, and we get to take part in that. But what I would just caution is, think about the parable of the talents. Okay, back to the person that says, you know, I don't care about the Supreme Court ruling because the church can thrive in North Korea. That is a burying your talents in the ground mentality. Utilize the freedoms 
and the privileges that we do have here in America. We are privileged people in America compared to Christians across the world in China, right. in Iran, other places. But that isn't given to us to make us feel guilty. That's a secular way of thinking right. about this issue. A Christian way of thinking about this issue is God has given you talents. Use them. Use your religious freedom. Right. Use the fact that we live in a, in, a, in a nation under the rule of law. Use the fact that we have a defined vision of what it means to live in a just society. Use the fact that we have protection of religious groups in this country to expand the kingdom of God. So it all comes down to me as a stewardship issue. Uh, that's a we great do not way scorn the blessings that God has given us uh, because he didn't give them to everyone. We have been given those things to use. We have a responsibility to develop those talents into other talents. And so to be faithful to God for us means that we do what we can for the kingdom of God with the blessings and the tools that we have been given. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.